Uh, we are in our third and final week in our study on the judges' generation, uh, zooming in on one particular judge. But we've been talking about the whole generation of judges, of the nation of Israel during this time. And I think this study uh, is probably one that uh, has brought a lot of new stories your way, a lot of new texts or a new, uh, maybe some scriptures that you haven't looked at in a while uh, across, your, uh, across your eyes. And, and maybe you've been reminded of some things that, uh, hey, you ought to read the Bible more because there's a whole lot of incredible stories all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible. And, and again, Judges is often overlooked, uh, but we've had a great time, I think, in this uh, couple week series. Now, uh, you know, as memorable as the Judges generation is for its colorful heroes and its spectacular episodes, and we've only covered just a little bit of it. Again, the whole book is so remarkable. Um, the Judges generation, in terms of history, in terms of how the Jewish people think about it and, and reflect on it, uh, that generation is often forgotten. Uh, it's easily skipped over when recounting the history of Israel. And speaking of which, uh, something that we found out in studying the Judges generation is that the people of that generation were very forgetful themselves. So the Jews like to forget this generation uh, because in that generation, the people of Israel were very forgetful. But what we've also learned is God, as he always has been and always will be, even though they were forgetful, God was faithful to his people. Now, that's really a perfect way to capture the judge's generation, maybe just maybe it's a good t uh, framework to put around every generation, especially our generation. Uh, the judge's era may stand out in a biblical sense, but if you compare most generations since then, and if you compare the modern world that we live in, the story of humanity is one of being forgetful when it comes to the things of God, yet God has remained faithful to us. And, and that is something you can say, no matter what generation you're studying, no matter what situation the world might be in, you, you find a forgetful people and you find a faithful God. And, and Judges shows that God, as he was being faithful to his people, God was specifically trying to break through toward his people and to his people so that they might break out of this slump they were in because they were in a mighty bad place. And, and God raised up these deliverers called judges appropriately, uh, who would call, he would call, he would equip, and he would use to work wonders in the land. The people of that generation had grew up uh, hearing stories of what God did through Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb, and, and how Moses led them out of Egypt. Joshua led them into the promised land. Uh, God exercised his power to make uh, through them, made himself known through them. And uh, they, they proved to, to their generation that God was real and that he was faithful and that uh, if you just believed in him, uh, he would work wonders in your midst. And, and the judges were raised up to remind their generation that that same God was still in control and that if only they would turn towards him, if only they would put their faith back in him, they would see those same wonders in their generation. And, and God did something else in this generation, something brand new that he had not done with Moses or Joshua. God previewed what would be the age to come that he has done in our day and age. Uh, God anointed these judges with his Holy Spirit. First time you ever read of anything like that in the Bible is in the book of Judges. God fills the judges' hearts with his spirit. He had not done that to Moses or Joshua, and he would not do that again until the New Testament age when Christians receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. So the judges are a preview of how God can work personally in the lives of those that trust in him and are centered 
around him and God gives us a purpose and fills us with joy and that only fulfillment can be found even in the average person. The judges demonstrated that every one of us can be filled with the power of God, the life of God and find joy and fulfillment in him. And you see, the people had turned from God supposing that life was better elsewhere during the judges' generation, but all the things they enjoyed in life were from God, and yet they forgot that. And without him to make sense of it all and to give purpose to it all, all those things were just temporary, short-lived, and disposable experiences. As the people got settled and as they became forgetful, that coincided with their becoming insatiable, that they could never find any satisfaction in the world and, and they became consumers of the land and they weren't stewards of it. They forgot where it came from and they saw it as just for their own use. And as they began to plow through the things of the land, nothing ever made them happy. And I can't help but think that's a picture of us. It's a picture of our generation. We move from high to high, uh, trying to obtain a stable, consistent life of joy and peace, but we never really get there. And we become all the more dissatisfied and discontent because the nature of the things that we lean on and put our weight on and put our hopes in just can't hold us up and cannot satisfy us like God promises he will and only will. Uh, God used the judges to reveal that only in him and by him and through him is a life of joy available and achievable. Uh, and he gives us true life and he gives us abundant life. And we talked about that last week. Uh, the Jewish people may not look back on this generation fondly because it's sandwiched in between the days of Moses and the days of Joshua and the kingdom of David and Solomon. But there is a powerful message tucked between uh, those generations and tucked away in this little book. Though the people were forgetful, God was faithful. He sent judges to fill the nation with wonder and joy once again, to bring back the wonderful, to bring back the joyful to the people. Now, how successful was God at doing that? Well, it depends on what point in the story you stop reading. Uh, because if you read the book of Judges, there are some very high highs, but there are also some very low lows. And it, and it wasn't a matter of God's ability. And it wasn't a matter of God being able to sustain them. He laid it all on the table. He set before them everything they needed. And it was always up to the people to believe and follow and Put, their, put him at the center of their lives, orbit their lives around him, be in step with him. Unfortunately, if you read the whole story of Judges, it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle that we, it's almost like every three chapters, it's repeated the same situation. They get a hold of it for a season. They find where God wants them to be and they are delivered from their enemies, yet they just can't ever establish any sort of consistency or rhythm. The nation is stuck on loop, often referred to as the sin cycle. While the judges rise up and deliver them, even the judges were mortals and they did not live forever. And often when the judges died, the nation would disassemble and the nation would fall back into uh, other gods and other idols and other kings would influence them and enslave them. Uh, but there is an example of one judge who, though fully aware and equipped with God's wonder and joy, he was still a sinner and they all were sinners, but the judge we've been talking about is an example of how he was still a sinner like everyone else. And he, and this is so unfortunate, this judge fell victim to the very cycle he was sent to deliver the nation from. This judge, and of course, uh, he was capable of doing that. He was a man like everyone else was, but he was meant to live above the rest. He was meant to be an example of what could be. 
But this judge fell victim to the very cycle that he was sent to stop and deliver the people from. It turns out, however, that even though his story ends tragically, even though the nation loses what little unity they had for a time to come, his experience actually leaves the nation with tons of hope because it models for everyone how we can break free from this cycle once and for all. And we've been studying this certain judge's story for all the wonder and all the joy. Today, his story, Samson's story, takes a bit of an unfortunate turn, but one that I think will benefit from hearing and studying. Now, if you have studied Samson's life before, the whole, the entirety of it, you'll know that Samson's life and his story is really a microcosm of the judge's generation as a whole. Israel was forgetful and fell into captivity. So God was faithful and raised up Samson and other people like Samson, but Samson himself became forgetful. And Samson himself fell into sin. Even though God was faithful and God blessed him like he had blessed Israel, Samson fell into that same cycle of sin. And Samson fell away from the Lord. And as he fell away, the nation fell away. Now, we left off at Judges 16 last week where Samson's followers recorded in great detail, and we're going to unpack that in its full. But what we're going to do today is examine his fall and understand why he fell and how he fell. And from a life of devotion, full of God's spirit to a life that was so far away from God, we'll see how God gives Samson a second chance though. So just to go ahead and tell you the end of the story that there is a second chance for Samson. And he, his story embodies what it truly means to return to God and be restored by God. Before we look at that though, I want to show you a few signs along the way in Samson's story that showed that he was always flirting with dangerous ground. Samson was always kind of tempting himself or being tempted by this slippery slope. And, and, and way back in chapter 14, at the beginning of Samson's story, we actually see that something wasn't right with Samson. Yet, as we've studied the last couple of weeks, God continued to use Samson. God blessed Samson. But in the very early days of Samson's ministry, and that might make you feel uncomfortable because how could a man with a ministry be a man that was so imperfect and, and, and so, for lack of a better word, sinful? We'll talk about that. But in Judges 14, verses 1 through 3, we get a picture of Samson the man. Samson that was, had a lot of blind spots and was capable of a lot of flaws. Look at chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said, there's no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among your, all your, your people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines because that was again, not according to the Jewish way. And Samson said to her, his father, get her for me. She, for she pleases me well. Now, the Hebrew for she pleases me well is the same Hebrew that you see elsewhere in Judges phrased this way. For she is right in my own eyes. You've heard that before, haven't you? Later on in Judges, when the nation is completely falling away from God, you'll see the editor, you'll see the writer comment on the situation and say, in those days, there was no king. In those days, they did not follow the law because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here, here's Samson kind of previewing 
that situation, that condition. Uh, now, there's no commentary or editorial that interprets this as being a bad thing necessarily, but context in the book of Judges makes that statement a pretty obvious red flag. In fact, this is how the author signs off the whole book. If you, if you read the very last line, very last verse of the book of Judges over in chapter 21, the writer says they did what was right in their own eyes. No wonder they found themselves in this mess. So clearly this is not admirable. This is not a virtue. Uh, it was made clear under Moses and Joshua that Israel did not need a king because God was their king. And if they only kept their eyes on him, they would do what was right. But if they began to do what was right in their own eyes, they would fall away. Now the judges were meant to establish, to remind people and reestablish their faith in God. In many ways, Samson did this. But Samson was obviously hypocritical when it came to his personal life. Samson had a glaring blind spot in his morals, in his morality, in his moral code. Nonetheless, and this might be the part that you kind of turn your head at. This might be the part that if you're a really religious person, and if you really try to do the right thing, and of course I hope all of you do, this might be the part that you kind of don't really know what to do with because you don't think that this should be a category that, that people could live in or function in. Samson had a blatant, glaring blind spot when it comes to his morals. Nonetheless, God used him. Nonetheless, God anointed him. If only to make clear that it was God, not Samson, doing all the wonders and, and the amazing things. But nonetheless, God used Samson. God blessed Samson. God loved Samson. Even though this is not the last time we see Samson making some questionable decisions and using his own judgment rather than God's way. Now, maybe that's not a good enough answer for you about how Samson could both be in God's will and a part of God's plan and how he also could be so flawed. Uh, I think it just shows God's desire to be involved in our lives. And, and who among us, come on, who among us is completely in step and obedient to God at all times? Of course, none of us are. All of us make, think, make decisions based on what seems right to us. It's not an excuse at all, but it's just true, isn't it? So God winking at Samson's moral failures and continuing to use him to deliver the nation wasn't duplicity on God's part because regardless how righteous any of us appear, God is always drawing near to us in spite of our remaining unrighteousness. That all of us are unrighteous. All of us have things in us that we're not proud of, that we are blind to or we overlook. And yet every time God deals with any of us and delights over any of us and works through any of us, he is doing so in spite of the unrighteousness righteousness that is still there and will always be there. So this is nothing more but a reminder that God loves us in spite of our sin and still uses us and still blesses us even though we are still capable and all, all, at times, you know, defiant in our sin. Does that make excuses for us? No. Does it make excuses for our sin? No. Does it lessen the consequences of our sin? No, by no means. We're about to read how much Samson's sin cost him. The story of Judges is about how much sin cost Israel as a whole. The time they spend away from God, the toll it brings, the pain it brings, the loss it brings, even though they were delivered to God and, and came back to God, the, the, the time, the toll, the grief, the pain, they didn't get that stuff back. It was gone. They lost those things because of sin. But, but I want to make this point before we really get into this because the message of judges isn't that sin is some light thing 
but that God is good in spite of how not good we are. That's the message of Judges. That God would use someone as flawed as Samson, as, as immoral as Samson. God would anoint him and use him to work many victories and be an admirable figure in the nation. That God would use Samson, not to say, oh, sin's not a big deal. Sin's a big deal. It's going to cost him his life. But the message of Judges isn't that sin is some small thing, but that God is good in spite of how not good we are. That God is dedicated to us even if we are not dedicated to him. That's the message of Judges. And the greater message is that as damaging as sin is and as consequential as sin is, it will never carry more weight than God's redeeming love, kindness, and goodness. Do you hear that? As damaging as sin is, and it's damaging, as costly as it is, and it's costly, it will never carry more weight than God's redeeming love. So I don't want you to underestimate the power of God. That's the point. Because yes, sin is costly. Yes, it's damaging. But let us be reminded of the God who loves us and the extent he's willing to go to to save us. That's the story of Judges. Sin is deadly. Yes, the way of man, the way that seems right to man often leads to death. But sin and death are no match to God. Sin may wreck us and death may bury us, but God is so committed to saving us that his goodness will do whatever it takes to reach us. Even if it takes raising us up from the bottom that we have fell to. Now, easy question that you might respond with is, wouldn't it be better to avoid sin altogether? Absolutely, of course. But nonetheless, God loves us too much to avoid us, even in our sin. That's the message of Judges, that yes, you should avoid it. Yes, it's going to cost you, and we'll deal with that. But nonetheless, God loves you too much to avoid you, even when he would have a good reason to. So that's why Samson could both be anointed by God and devoid of godly morals. That's how Samson could be both used by God and fail to apply the standards of God in his own personal life. Now, God does not explain himself. Did he need, did he need me to explain himself? Uh, you know, maybe not. But I felt like that's the best explanation we can muster up as how could Samson be this man so clearly flawed, yet so clearly anointed as we talked about last week. Does this mean God overlooks moral failures and blesses and uses in spite of that always? I, I don't know, but, I, but by no means should we ever presume on God's grace. And in fact, Romans 2 says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's not meant to say, oh, that's no big deal, keep going. It's meant to bring us to a place where we realize that this is going to cost us big time if we don't repent. But in the, but in the case that God's kindness meets, in, meets you in your rebellion, you know what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to choose life and escape the threat of death in your life because, because, because if we ignore his kindness and his goodness, eventually there will be consequences that may not remove God's blessings from us, but remove us from where God wants us to be and they will remove us from God's best for us. This is the case for Samson's life. But just to keep hope alive, 
Even as Samson shirks God's overwatch, even as Samson says, I'm gonna do my thing and I'll see you later, God. God was making plans to meet him where sin would take him. And sin is gonna take him to a very dark, very grim place. Yet in spite of all that, God was making plans to meet Samson when he hit the bottom. Could he have helped him along the way if he would have wanted to help? Yes. But the point is this, King David wrote in one of the Psalms when he was referring to his own day's rebellion against God. He said this in retrospect, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence if, my ma- if I make my bed in hell? Now he's not talking about literally going to hell, but it's as if, if I live a lifestyle that is so devoid of God, so devoid of his presence. What does David say? If I make my bed in hell, this is David, not me. You are there as in God would not let David get beyond his reach. That's the God you serve. That's the God that we serve. That is the God who sent Jesus to earth to get us, who put Jesus in a grave for us. That is who our God is. I think that's pretty incredible, if you ask me. Okay, we've teased it long enough. Let's look at Samson's sin and see exactly where it took him. Flip over to chapter 16, first six verses. Now Samson went down to Gaza and saw a prostitute there and he went into her. When the Gazites were told, hey, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night saying in the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. After it happened, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorg. Now, I just want to stop and say, you're just going to say that and not comment on it, judge, I mean, writer, you know, Samson or Samuel, whoever's writing this. I mean, no big deal. He went out, he went down to uh, the, the Philistine land. He, you know, got involved with a woman he should not have gotten involved with. But oh, by the way, while he was there involved in things he shouldn't have been involved in, he works this supernatural power of God and delivers the Israelites from them. I mean, you're not gonna stop and say, well, it wasn't right that he did the sin, but it was okay. I mean, the writer doesn't tell us because this is who Samson is. Is it right? No. Is it gonna cost him? Yes. But this is the tension that we find in the story. And if we're being honest, this is the tension that a lot of us are in. Sin that is in the background of our lives that we wonder, is it gonna catch up with this? Is it gonna be a problem one day? Or is it just no big deal? Sin that kind of has a place in our life that we should have gotten rid of a long time ago, wherever it is, whatever it is. And yet all the while, we're still serving God. We're still looking to God and we still worship God and we still believe in God. And God even uses us like God used Samson. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe that's where all of us are at today. So lean into that tension because it's gonna get even more tense for Samson. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And you've heard this story before. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may blind him, bind him and afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So we don't know Delilah's occupation. It must not have been a good one. She's looking out for money. She's looking for ways to profit for ourselves. And, and she knew that Samson was a man who had a very weak 
weakness in this specific area. So Delilah comes to Samson, or maybe Samson comes to Delilah as he did before to the other woman. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and what and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Now, she must have knew that she had some power over him if she could just ask him that question. He's just still going to hang around. That shows you kind of the mess that Samson was in, mentally, morally, and all the things in between. And, and, and I think you can, you can title this chapter, this section, Samson's Lust and Satan's Trap. Now talk about presuming on God's kindness. Samson has it in high gear. It's very clear what Samson wants in his life and what he is prioritizing at this point in his life. We don't hear anything about God's spirit at all in these verses, do we? Because that's not what he's into right now. Yet God would stand by him in a way only God could. Samson's lust eventually got the best of him and from verses six down to verse 15, there's a lot of back and forth between Samson and Delilah. He hung out with her a lot. She's so desperate to find out what his weakness is or what his strength, how his strength can be taken away. And finally, she has a way to get to him. In verse 15, we pick up the story. Then Samson said, how can you, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have told me, told me where your strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him that his soul was vexed to death. That he told her all his heart and said to her, no razor has ever touched, ever come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Delilah saw that she had told that he had told her his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines and said, "Come up once more, for he has told me his heart." So the lords of the Philistines came up and brought her money in their land, and she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of head, uh, seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. She said to the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He, he woke with, from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him on bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. Now we have two people in the story that don't care anything for each other but want something so badly from the other. Samson does not care for Delilah. She is just the flavor of the week for him, feeling his uncontrolled lust. Delilah does not care for Samson. He's a pathway to more fortune for her. But the focus is on Samson, particularly the trap that was set for him and the lust that drove him. Before Samson committed any sexual sin, he committed an even worse farther-reaching spiritual sin. He failed to remember that he was a chosen vessel of, the God, of God, an instrument in God's plan to help the world. And he began to leverage his gifts that he had been given for his own pleasure and his own gain. The blessings that he had been given, the life that he had been a steward of, for a long time, he got by with it, just like a lot of us do. We tread this line day after day where we take what God intends for one thing and we see how far we can stretch it for something else that he didn't intend it for. Or we see how much we can blur the lines and tilt the scales in our favor for mostly selfish use. God had given Samson a position of power and with that charm and charisma and wisdom, 
the things he needed to lead, he had given him a stature that he could house the strength to physically fight for Israel. These blessings from God came with targeted attacks and traps set by the devil. And it happened for Samson, it would happen for us. It will happen for us. Samson's lust for power and pleasure were products of considering his wants over God's will, his gain over God's glory. Now, there are sermons upon sermons in that statement alone. This statement can be applied to our lives in so many ways. How we manage our money, how we handle our appetites for power and pleasure, how we conduct ourselves professionally or within the world that God has put us in. Sin always happens when the scales tilt ever so subtly, when we forget that we and all that we have been given are set apart for God. Your personality, your traits, your gifts, your opportunities, your resources, all have been given to you to be set apart for God. When Samson, when his mom found out she was pregnant, the angel told her that this child of yours is to be set apart for me. And, and Samson references it back in verse 17, that he was a Nazarite, which was a special kind of Jewish believer who wanted to be even more dedicated to God. Usually it was a voluntary choice, but Samson's case, it was placed on him and a decision was made for him. Now, I believe coupled with the fact that God's spirit dwelt in him in a unique way, this is a preview of the Christian life that uh, there, is no, there, are, there are no special Christians set apart. All of us are set apart for, for God and for the purpose of God. Samson was set apart for his generation to deliver the nation from sin and from the enemies. We are all set apart for God. Every one of you, every Christian, every believer is set apart for God and all that you've been given has been given to you so that it might be set apart for God's use, for God's glory, to keep you from something tragic, to keep you from wasting it on something selfish. Now, the night before Jesus died, Jesus literally prayed this specific request over you and over me. And if you would like to turn with me over to John 17, we'll flip back to Judges in just a minute. But John 17, verse 14 through 18, I just wanted you to see it in your own Bibles. Again, you can just listen if you'd like to. But in John 17, Jesus prays this over all the church, not just over super disciples, not just over the apostles, not just over certain church members or deacons or preachers, everybody. He prays this over all of us. He says this in John 17, I have given them, the church, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And here's the, here's the request. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also sent send. Them. So that word sanctify is literally the Greek word that means to set apart for the purposes of God. But church, the line is so thin. The line is so fine and Satan's temptations are real and how our flesh warps and corrupts God's desires for us should not be underestimated. Our desire for godly purpose and peace and joy can lead us to seeking this world's counterfeit alternatives. 
This is why we invest in all the wrong things, why we misunderstand sexuality, why we abuse things, become addicted to things, because we forget that we have been set apart for God. And we begin opening our heart to the wrong source and inevitably we fall asleep in the trap, just like Samson did. This is why the New Testament teaches that we must be sanctified, a daily decision, hour by hour decision, minute by minute decision. We should check in with God. Am I handling my morals the right way? Am I handling my finances the right way? Am I managing my time the right way? Am I conducting my relationships the right way? Am I sanctified? Am I set apart? Am I living a Christ-honoring, God-glorifying life? If you've been with us on Wednesdays, you've heard us study these verses from Romans. I'll just read them for you real quickly. Romans 6, you should write these down and you should read them and study them because this is what Paul says about being sanctified. That we should not present our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but that we should present ourselves to God as being risen from the dead, that he might make us like him, and again, y'all know Romans 12, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your body a living sacrifice. That's what it means to be set apart for God. Again, this is not an option for Christians. This is the commandment for all of us, lest we fall away like Samson fell away. The reality is, If we set aside that we are set apart for God, we will suffer setback after setback. If we are not transformed by God's word and God's will, our lusts and Satan's traps will conform us to this world. Maybe if you're being honest today, this has already happened to you. Privately, maybe in your family, everybody knows about it. Maybe people around the community knows about it. I don't know. Maybe... Your story recently, or as long as you can remember, has been a story of setting aside God's desire to sanctify you and lead you in leveraging the gifts and opportunities he's given you. Maybe the trap for you was different, or maybe it's similar. Maybe you fell into Satan's trap. You've made your bed in the lap of sin. You've allowed your lust to control you rather than seeking God's pure and perfect will. You took the cheap and easy way out. Maybe your situation isn't as dire as what happened to Samson, but maybe it is, and, and, or maybe it might get that way. After he gave up his strength to the world, he lost his ability to see. They took his eyes out. Listen, Satan is so cruel. He promises to give you all that you want, but in the end, he mocks you and he taunts you. He never wanted to give you this stuff in the first place. He only wanted to see you without the ability to get to where God always wanted you to be. Satan drained Samson of life and was working to take away his capacity and ability to enjoy life as God intended because that's what he is, a thief of the life that God wants to give you. This is where sin will take all of us, where our unbridled lusts will take us. Maybe we've already been taken there. Maybe our story isn't as gruesome as Samson's, but maybe that's why you lack the intimacy in your marriage. Maybe that's why you lack financial peace. Maybe that's why you lack fulfillment in any given area. Verse 21 would be such a tragic end to Samson's story. It took his eyes out, put him in chains, and he became a grinder in the prison, the mill that was adjacent to it. 
drained and blind and shackled and bound on a treadmill of the world, just counting down the days until it was over. This is where the devil wants to take all of us. And many of us are there and we've just glamorized it. And though a lot led us there, it all stems from setting aside and stepping aside from God's desire to set us apart. All because we did what was right in our own eyes. And what did the world do? They took his eyes away. Thankfully, verse 21 is not the end though. Look at verse 22. However, Maybe your Bible has but or yet, but you see that, that very important word. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Remember how I said earlier, God does not give up on us or give us over to defeat. That long before Samson ever made a confession or an admission, God's grace was at work on him and over him. God's grace broke through the trap and broke through his sin. That however, they chained him, they gouged his eyes out, they put him on the grinder, he was in prison. However, his hair began to grow back. I mean, can, there ever, can we ever begin to rejoice over the goodness and the mercy of God over a man who blatantly and willingly gave it all up and was suffering for it? Put the nation at risk too. However, God had not forsaken him. Let's see how this story ends. The lords of the Philistines regathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered him into our hands, Samson, our enemy. When the, God, when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, the one who multiplied our dead. So what happened when their hearts were merry, they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed or he just stood there blind as he was. And they mocked him. They stationed him between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who, helped, who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, oh Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen, I pray, strengthen me, I pray, just this one, so God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. He braced himself against them, one on the right, one on the left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. In the darkest moment, in the darkest place, Samson remembered his purpose. He remembered where he went wrong. He prayed that God might restore him one more time, that he might save his people. And in the process, Samson himself was also saved. He lost his life, but in death, in his loss, he obtained something greater. He knew, and he had to know, that pushing these pillars down 
would kill himself too, but he was okay with that. Not because he had given up, but because he was looking up and trusting that God would be honored by this and his own integrity would be restored. There's a word for this, you know. When we surrender before God, willing to lose our life in order to gain something greater from God. There's a word for when we are full of sorrow, for what we've done to dishonor God in our own life, full of confidence in God's power to forgive and redeem us. And the word is repentance. And that's what Samson does. Listen, sometimes admitting, confessing is the hardest part because pride, because of shame. But the only way back to God, if we've walked away, is through repentance. Repentance is, yes, it's confessing our wrong, but it's more than that. It's trusting that God is right and it's clinging to him. It's clinging to God for the life that you cost yourself, that sin cost you. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, for godly grief or sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. This is the prodigal son story. He knew that he had done wrong, but he also knew that his father had always meant best for him and a slave in his father's house was better than whatever he was doing. Repentance often gets misunderstood as a change in actions and it can lead to that. It should lead to that. But at the heart of repentance is a change of our affection. It's bringing our love for sin and our love for self and exchanging that for a love for God and a life that wants to glorify God above ourselves. It's bringing our sorrows to God and trusting that God will return joy to us. Now, let me be very clear. There's no from now on for Samson. Right, I mean, he's not saying, God, if you get me out of this, I'll change. There's no from now on. He knows this is it. Just like the thief on the cross. There's no, I'll do better next time because this is it, right? There's no, Jesus, if you save me, I'll be a better person because you're gonna be a dead person in a couple of minutes. There's no, hey, I'll change. That's why repentance is not something we do outwardly. It may lead to that, but repentance is the heart changing its affection. Like the thief, Samson says, remember me. Remember me. God had not forgotten Samson. Samson had forgotten God, yet he was reacquainted here at the very last. Repentance ultimately is not measured by what earthly, by earthly means. It's about the heart of a person. Ultimately, what matters is what God's record says of our lives, not anyone else's. Winston Churchill once said that history would be kind to him because he was gonna write his own history books. It's not what we say about ourselves or what someone else says about us that matters. It's what God says about us. If we trust in God's mercy, the Bible says we can be forgiven and we will be saved. You may have a hard time believing that about yourself some days. Other people may never believe that about you some days, but that doesn't matter because when you bring your sin to God and you bring sorrow for how you've dishonored him and how you've risked destroying yourself, the grief and the shame and the damage, if you come to God realizing that he loves you and that you want to love him with your whole heart, God accepts that and God will restore you. 
every time. The world may never accept it. You may have a hard time accepting it in the mirror, but God says, trust in me. You bring that to me. You trust in me. All that matters is what I say about you. And what I say about you is you're forgiven and you're mine. God is the one who brings us to this place. God softens our heart. God draws us back to him. And God's doing that today over you, over us. And the question is, will we come to him? Will we trust that he is bigger than our sin? He is better than whatever sin promised us. And in the shame, in the sorrow, in the distress that we have found ourselves in because of following our own way, we go to God and say, God, I trust that you are good and you mean best and you can make something out of the mess that I bring before you. Remember me. Could Samson's story have went differently? Of course. Did God will for it to go differently? Of course. But the reality is Samson was just like us. He made one decision and another decision. An appetite that was once very small got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and he just did not know what to do with it and he did not give it to God soon enough. And eventually it cost him everything. And by the authority of God's word, sin will cost you everything except one thing. It is not greater than God's love for you. And it is not able to keep you from being restored and being saved. But the requirement is that we believe that God is who the word says he is. And the proof is, that just as Samson put his hands on those pillars, Jesus stretched his own hands out one day, right? And he pushed away all of our sin and all of our shame. And he says to you and he says to me, I love you. You can be changed. You can be forgiven. Bring your heart to me and I'll show you. Samson cast himself before the goodness of God. He trusted that he would be better off in God's hands over any alternative. And I'd say in heaven, one day he'll tell us, I was absolutely right. He saved because of it. His story was, his story was redeemed. You and I, our story can be redeemed too. God wants to set us apart for his glory. God wants to Bring us back from our sorrows. May we trust in and respond to God's gracious invitation today. All of us have went astray. All of us have stumbled and all of us can be redeemed. If this world has left you full of sorrow and shame, God is still faithful. He can restore your joy and bring wonders to your life once again. The question is, will we respond? Will we repent so that we might find salvation and come to life once again, this is the breakthrough God wants to give so many of us. Will we come to him just like Samson did and prove to us we serve a loving and merciful God? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, there's not two more contrasting verses in the Bible. Sin calls Samson his vision, his strength, put him in prison, left to die. 
However, his hair began to grow back. Long before he ever said, God, forgive me, you were pouring your grace out on him. You loved him and you did not forsake him. Lord, would you remind everybody here today that even though they may have made and we all have made some questionable decisions that you have not forsaken them, that you love them and you're inviting them back to you. And no matter what they may feel like is too big and too shameful and too heavy to get back from, you remind them, you promise them that you can restore them, you can redeem them, that your goodness is trustworthy. Lord, I pray that you might would help us all to trust that you are better You are better than anything and anyone else of this world. And whereas sin may have left us defeated, you will raise us up in victory. Forgiven, delivered, saved, restored. Lord, we cast ourselves at your goodness today. And I pray that if there's anybody in the house today that's never put their faith in Jesus for the first time, or maybe they wanna renew and rededicate their faith in him, would you lead them to that place today? Show them the love that you showed Samson and restore them like you've restored so many. In Jesus' name, amen.